0: Good morning, I'm Jake Porter, a mission partner here at Neartown Church, and I'm so honored to share with you this morning from God's Word. Specifically, we're gonna be in Psalm 25. So I wanna invite you to open your Bible or your Bible app to Psalm 25, and while you do that, I'm gonna give you a bit of an idea where we're headed this morning. The Book of Psalms was the hymnal for ancient Israel's worship. It was their book of church music. And they're packed full of emotions, and the predominant emotion of Psalm 25 is shame. Now, of all the emotions that God's given us, I do not know of one that provides of any more discomfort than shame. Who wants to feel that? Our upper chest gets tight, and we feel a warmth in our necks and our faces that somehow makes us want to turn our eyes away from the world. Shame makes us want to disappear. Bit of trivia for you. The English language is one of the few languages in the world that has only one word for shame. Most have a word for healthy, positive shame and another for unhealthy, negative shame. So for us, the very thought that shame can be good is difficult to believe. You're probably thinking to yourself, I don't want any kind of shame, but that's not true. You don't want to live a shame-free life. And you know this intuitively. Just as no one wants to be shameful, you also don't want to be shameless. Both extremes are unhealthy. Yet we found ourselves in one position or another, all of us. And I would say, based on my experience counseling others and looking at my own past, that shame, more than any other emotion, is at the root of our fears and guilts and broken relationships and stressors and many other issues. In the first three verses of Psalm 25, shame, or being ashamed, is mentioned three times. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And then again at the end in verse 20, shame is mentioned again. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. So we see that a prayer against shame is the frame around which the contents of the psalm are built. It's a song by King David about how to deal with the experience of shame. But before we look at that, we need to think more about the emotional experience of shame itself. Take a moment to recall a time when you felt ashamed. If you can't think of a time, that's probably a problem. What brought on those feelings? What thoughts went through your mind? How did you feel? How did you behave? Did your response make things better or worse? Here's another bit of trivia for you. Shame is the first emotion mentioned in the Bible, Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, in writing this, the author of Genesis is making a strong point that before the fall, before human sinned in a disobedience to God, there was no shame. God created a universe in which he declared everything good, and this included not just the creation of Adam and placing him in the Garden of Eden, but Also, the creation of the woman so that the man was not alone. Adam, Eve, and God together in the garden paradise. This was humanity as it was created to be in perfect harmony with God, one another, and the world. They were naked, meaning there's nothing to hide. Of course, this all changed when sin was introduced into the picture. What happened? we read in chapter 3 that when they disobeyed, suddenly their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. And then they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves from one another. And they hid from each other. And then they heard God approaching and they hid from him too. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they transgressed what they were created to do, when the the response to the serpent's temptation that they could be like God was to try to be that way, they immediately felt shame. They tried to hide themselves. Listen, as humans, we're created with limits, finite creatures under an infinite creator, but more than mere creatures because we bear his image. Healthy shame is what we feel when we've crossed the limits and tried to be more or less than who God created us to be. Think of healthy shame as an awareness of being out of place. When we're tempted to eat the forbidden fruit so that we can become like God, it's shame that reminds us we're not God. Healthy shame leads to contrition and remorse over sin. It's the foundation of humility so that we see ourselves as God sees us. Finite creatures, short of God's glory, no better than or worse than any other image bearer, and yet creatures in his image, objects of his love. But what about unhealthy shame? When that awareness of being out of place doesn't lead to a contrite heart and humble attitude, then shame becomes unhealthy. Rather than admit our weakness, we hide from one another and from God. Unhealthy shame makes us run and hide. It throws us into a life that is guarded and defensive and secretive. But there's another reaction we have to unhealthy shame. Do you remember what happened after God called out Adam in the garden and Adam admitted to hiding because of his nakedness? He immediately attacked his wife and God. He said, the woman that you gave me, she took the fruit and ate it. And then what did the woman do? She blamed the serpent. So that sense of shame first compelled them to hide, but then once exposed, it led them to attack and blame. So here's the bottom line about shame before we moved on to look at some points from Psalm 25. Shame is what we feel when we try to be other than what we are, human, more than a mere creature, less than God. Okay, let's look at Psalm 25 now. We've already seen that David organizes the psalm by bookending it with prayers against experiencing shame. Now throughout the psalm, we see there are two sources for shame. We feel shame from these two sources, the sins we commit and the sins others commit against us. Let's look at the second first. Verse two, oh God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. In David's mind, he's having his enemies over him. He doesn't want to be put in a position of inferiority or looked down on. Verse 19, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. One source of shame is that when we are not treated as human, holding that same place as everyone else, we're looked down upon. Or to give it another perspective, we shame others when we don't recognize the dignity that they deserve as image bearers of God. David was familiar with this. When the prophet Samuel came to his father, Jesse, he wanted to see all his sons because one of them would be anointed the king of Israel. Jesse sent for them all except David. He was shorter, the youngest, out in the fields with the sheep singing and playing his harp. His father rejected him as a possible choice. Or his first wife, when she saw David dancing before the Lord, when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to the people of God, she looked down on him and despised him and spoke harshly of him. Or King Saul, who hated David and sought to kill him. Here's David's king, supposed to be a protector of his people. Or Absalom, David's own son, who rebelled and tried to overthrow him and take the throne. From every one of these people, David felt contempt. And each of them were people that David should have been able to count on. Instead, he was mistreated, abandoned, disrespected, misunderstood. Parents, authority figures, spouses, kids, friends, when we feel looked down on by them, we may feel shame. We fear them making a judgment that we are less than. And this shame can compel us to hide from them, to build up walls around our hearts, to protect ourselves from further contempt. But this act of hiding ultimately reinforces in us a belief that we're fundamentally flawed and inferior. We think that there's something wrong with us, and so we cannot let ourselves be fully known. So the first source of shame is the sins of others against us. The second source is our own sin. David's memory of his own sins is prevalent in this psalm. Verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Or verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Verse 18, Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. We are all sinners, yet somehow we believe that we're the worst sinners. Even Paul said that. And with our sin comes shame. And just like Adam and Eve, rather than admit our wrong and turn to God, we hide from others and from Him. We try to cover our own sin. Shame drives us to keep the sin a secret. And in secrecy and darkness, it remains powerful over us. So how would God instruct us to deal with this shame? Well, We're going to quickly look through this psalm to see how David does it. Back to verse one. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. The first thing David says to God as he deals with shame is that he lifts up his soul to the Lord. Now, I once believed that this phrase meant, I lift myself up in prayer, motivated by concern. You know how we say in prayer, I lift up so and so to you, Lord, well, that's not the idea in Hebrew. It's rather that David's saying, I lift up my soul to you, Lord, as in I direct my desires and my longings. I turn my heart toward you. I'm gonna focus my expectation on you. God, I'm worried about my sins. I'm worried about my enemies. I'm haunted by my past. I'm afraid of my future. I want to run and hide, but God, I lift up my soul to you. My desires, expectations, heart to you. Why? Because in verse two, the psalmist expresses trust. He believes God, taking him at his word. He chooses to hope in God and not himself or others of the world. And all this is rooted in the belief in verse 3 that those who wait on the Lord shall not be put to shame. So there are three actions in these three verses, desiring God or turning our hearts to him, trusting God, and waiting on God. And the rest of the psalm unfolds how we do those things in such a way that we do not experience unhealthy shame. So we're going to take them in reverse order. First, what does it mean to wait on God? Verse 3, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Verse 5, for I wait for you all day long. Verse 21, for you I wait. So what does it mean to wait? Waiting is an act of submission, a willingness not to take action yourself, but to allow another to act in his own way and timing. Shame often drives us to try to take control of our own lives. Well, newsflash, we aren't in control. We get so afraid of being exposed or rejected or feeling inferior or looking bad that we compromise the values with which we would normally live and instead seek whatever's necessary to prevent our vulnerability or exposure. We either run away or hide or attack others. We try to do it our way, fix it now. Instead, we need to learn to wait for the Lord. Look at verses 15 through 17. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck me out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Life can feel as if we're caught in a net, trapped in our past, trapped in relationships that bring more pain than joy. And look at this strange combination of emotions in verse 16 lonely and afflicted. To be afflicted means that someone is attacking us, it means that we're undergoing torment from another, from an outside source. And yet at the same time, David's saying he feels lonely. That's exactly how shame works. We feel the disapproval and despising and disrespect of others in such a way that we feel alone and unworthy. It's a vicious net. But where are David's eyes directed? Verse 15 says toward the Lord. I get the picture that he has struggled and tried to free himself on his own, wriggled and pulled with all his strength to feel better about himself, to get even, to prove his worth, to get tough, but in the end, he's still stuck in that net. So finally, he looks to God and waits for the Lord, in verse 15, to pluck his feet out of the net. Verse 17, David asks God, bring me out of my distress. Waiting on God means that we trust that ultimately, he is the one who must rescue us. Our deliverance will come from him if it's to come at all. When we're attacked, we do not attack in return. We wait for the Lord. When we're ashamed, we do not then seek to make much of ourselves to prove our worth. We wait for the Lord. But waiting doesn't mean we do nothing. There's something for us to do. We're to trust. And trusting leads to active behavior. There are two ways we trust God. We trust him when we act right, and then we trust him when we don't. Look at verse 4. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. David desires God's guidance in life. Trusting God means that we believe he knows the right way. His ways, his paths are the ways we want. Their truth. Verse eight, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs the sinners in his way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Remember healthy shame, that sense of discretion and being out of place? That's the foundation of humility. Well, look at how these verses work together. When we're humble, that is, when we see ourselves rightly as God sees us, we're led and taught by him. We come to know what is right and find his way. The very people in verse 9 referred to as the humble are in verse 8 referred to as sinners. You see, this isn't about being perfect, but admitting that we aren't. So much shame is based on the idea that we're supposed to be perfect or else. And the good news, verse 8, is that God is not dealing with us based on our righteousness, but his character. He instructs us because he's good. He deals with us sinners because he's good, not because we are. So we're to trust God by following him, walking in his ways. We're also to trust him, though, when we fail to do what's right. Verse six, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they've been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. David trusts God's promises for forgiveness. It's not about making up for them ourselves, but God's amazing grace to forgive. And why is he willing and ready to forgive? Look at his motivation in verse seven. For the sake of the Lord's goodness, verse 11, for your name's sake, pardon my guilt. This is about God, not us. If you wait until you feel you deserve to live in freedom before you accept forgiveness and move on from your past, you will never ever get there. So listen, it's not about you, but God. It's for his sake and his goodness and his name. This is about how he has shown his love for us through giving his son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior. And we have to desire God. Number three, Verse 10 contains an amazing promise, but it's one that only appeals to us if God himself is the desire of our hearts. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. David assures us that we can trust God, that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. They're good and right. They may not be the worldly things we want in our flesh, but if we want him and his glory and his love, then all his paths for us are faithfulness and love. What a promise. Waiting on God and following his ways will always lead to God's goodness, love, and faithfulness. All things work together for our good. Let me try to tie this all together and put a bow on it. Shame says you're not enough, you're less than, you're worthless. It drives us to compare ourselves to one another and to God in a really unhealthy and destructive way. We run, we hide, and then we're found out and we try to dodge and blame and attack. But God leveled the playing field for us humans. You see, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no one who needs God more or less than anyone else. I need Jesus as much today as I ever have and as much as anyone else does right now. At the cross, Jesus bore our sin and shame. He took it on himself to satisfy the wrath of God to make us new and forgiven. At the cross, we see that God can love a sinner like me and I can lift up my heart and confidence to him. I trust in him because he's my one true hope. That which used to bring me shame is now a trophy of God's amazing grace through Jesus who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. And it's my hope that any of you this morning who are living a life in shame would turn to Christ and in him find forgiveness, that you will direct your hearts to him, wait on him, and trust in the work of Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Can I pray for us? Father, thank you so much that through your son, Jesus, you have dealt with not just our sin, but also our shame. You have made a way for us, Lord, to experience life as your image bearers, as your sons and daughters. And it comes, God, not as we are perfect in ourselves, but as we are made perfect through the work of your son, Jesus, for us. God, may we remember that that when we sin, just as you went to Adam and sought him out, so you seek us out and you call us to return to you. Father, free us from our shame that we might walk in the light and point others to you as a source of love and forgiveness and new life. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.